Hey friends, welcome to Boca, a podcast exploring the ever-blurring lines between the personal and business lives of professional photographers. This is your host, Nathan Holritz, and I'm happy that you can join me today in connecting with photographers and entrepreneurs as we discuss photography, business, and oh yeah, that sometimes messy thing that we call life. This podcast is brought to you by Photographer's Edit, custom image editing for the wedding and portrait photographer. Just visit photographersedit.com. All right, Boca Podcast listeners, thanks so much for tuning in today for yet another episode. And I'm here with my friend, Natalie Frank. Natalie, thank you so much for making time for the Boca community. I am thrilled. I'm so excited. You have one of the most extraordinary podcasts in the industry. I've listened to so many of my friends, my colleagues be on this podcast. And so I'm honored that you're having me on. So thank you so much, Nathan. I really appreciate it. Well, and, and I'm, I'm I'm blushing a little bit over here. I didn't realize that you were an, you were a listener. So I do appreciate you making time for that. <laughs> and, and we feel like it's a privilege to have you on. Um, certainly, you've made a, a massive impact in the industry. And we'll talk a little bit about that here in just a little bit. But we normally here at the Book of Podcasts start off with something that we call the technique for time. And very simply, this has to do with maybe a particular tip or trick, a workflow technique, if you will, that you implement in your life as an entrepreneur to create space for yourself, to create time for yourself. What, what comes to mind when you hear that? Absolutely. So a, a couple of things. I think the biggest thing for me is just having a calendar that I leverage and use like every minute of every day. I use Google Calendar and I block schedule my entire life on that calendar. So everything from journaling to going to yoga to every meeting I have throughout the day, every partnership meeting. I mean, this podcast, it's color-coded and organized and on my Google Calendar, including personal time with family and friends. I schedule it in. I think having a place where everything is sorted has just been completely integral to how I run my business. And then also in terms of, of just time, I use time tracking tools. So in HoneyBook, we actually have a, a time tracking tool and I leverage that just to keep track of how many hours am I spending here? How many hours am I spending there? Just to ensure efficiency in different parts of, of my life. So I'm curious, I've got a couple of questions, but the yeah. first thing that comes to mind is you talk about time tracking and mm -hmm. I, I personally like structure in my life. We were talking about that briefly before I hit the record button, but there is a certain point at which that structure almost seems like micromanagement. Like I'm, I'm having mm. to keep up with too much. Uh, I like the freedom and the flexibility that I have as an entrepreneur. So how do you do something like time tracking and yet still maintain a certain amount of flexibility so you don't feel like you're micromanaging your life? Absolutely. So I look at it as freedom within a framework. I've learned that when I build strong frameworks around my time, I have more freedom, meaning I could spend a whole week just trying to empty my inbox and get lost and procrastinate. And I have a tendency to be, you know, slightly distracted by shiny object syndrome <laughs> just as a, as a creator, as yeah. an entrepreneur. So when I am very rigid with that time, what it allows me to do is even schedule blocks for brainstorming, schedule mm. blocks for, for example, just creative expression. And I'll take time and pull out my iPad and doodle. And there's a ton of freedom in that time, but it's still scheduled in. Therefore, I'm required to sort of do it. Otherwise, I don't know if you've ever been this way, but you can get into this, this habit ultimately of working and working and working and just popping your head up from the hustle and saying, when's the last time I did something that I loved? Yeah. 
and I never want to fall into that category ever again of, of, you know, an entrepreneur that feels burnt out by, by that sort of hustle. So I'm rigid with that schedule. And within that schedule, there are a lot, actually a lot of blocks for different things that just bring me joy. And I, I think it almost kind of holds me accountable to take that time with the people that I love and doing the things that I love. So that's where the freedom component comes in. Yeah, the the idea of of structure and artistic freedom, or just freedom in, as an entrepreneur, the fact that they're not mutually exclusive, I think, is a really good reminder for our listeners. I'm glad that you make that point. Do you, is there any element of your week that is not scheduled? Like, if you were to look at your Saturday calendar or your Sunday calendar, are you even blocking those days off? Saturday and Sunday are fairly open. I, I really don't try to incorporate my Google Calendar scheduling onto the weekends, so that would definitely be something that's much more free. You know, my Sundays look a lot like sleeping in and, you know, heading to the farmer's market with my husband yeah. and taking time to stream my church from back home on my computer. I'm yeah. still doing that, I know, two years into living on the, on the <laughs> West Coast. But I I do leave a lot of wiggle room on the, on the weekends. I try to turn off whenever I can. It's just really for me during the week, maximizing every minute so that I, you know, I get it all done. I get everything accomplished and there's no overwhelm, no sort of feeling behind, which is a feeling I felt a lot actually when I was full-time as a wedding photographer. Absolutely. Well, very, very much innate to what you're describing is a sense of proactivity and it is easy to get bogged down with everything that happens to us in our business and go into a reactive mode where everything is just incoming and you react to this thing and that thing, this email, that text message, this social media, you know, blow up, whatever it might be to just constantly react and very proactively scheduling out your calendar on a day-to-day basis does give you ultimately the, the freedom, the flexibility that you can have as an entrepreneur because now you're proactively deciding how you're spending your time versus reacting to everybody else's thoughts about how you should spend your time. And, and I love that. You mentioned journaling, and that's this is something that we've not discussed a whole lot in the podcast, but what benefit do you find personally from journaling? Journaling is almost like self-therapy for me. So Mm. it enables me to really work through my thoughts, work through where I'm at in relationships, even how I'm feeling about certain things unfolding in my life. And I'm an introvert. I really regain my energy from kind of taking a step back, reflecting. And journaling has just been one of the ways that I do that. I love to write. I always have. I was the nerdy kid in high school who brought back the school newspaper and then (laughs) served as editor-in-chief for a number of years. And so that to me is just, it's an outlet. And, you know, journaling can take the form of actually sitting down to write things out. For me, it also, though, looks a little bit like doodling in the margins. I sometimes just really enjoy taking time to creatively sketch out my thoughts. So it doesn't necessarily mean I'm writing like, dear journal, today I embarked on. No, it it could almost be something along the lines of vision, you know, for the future that I have or a concept that we've been playing around with. Um, And I just want to kind of get my thoughts on or if I'm struggling, having a tough time with something health wise or, you know, relationship wise, it gives me that space to really process so that I can act from a place of intentionality. And again, that reactive versus proactive mentality that you're talking about, I think, it just helps me to feel very grounded, very centered, and you know, a little bit of meditation and prayer in that journal as well. It's a giant hodgepodge of my thoughts on the page. Well, but there is something significant to giving space to process. And I realize this, especially experimenting with meditation on my own, that is my space to, for my almost for my mind, just to have time to process. Because I like the notion of proactivity. I like to be driven and get things done and, and be on the go. But 
it's almost as though our minds need a little bit of space just to take a deep breath and to, to just organize themselves and process a little bit for the sake of mental clarity and ultimately mental health and for the sake of minimizing the amount of stress that we're dealing with. And so I love that you're creating space for that. Do you, do you find that you're, you mentioned the iPad earlier in the iPad, or are you a pen and paper, paper girl? What, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. So for my journal, it's pen and paper. However, my iPad and iPad doodling has become a very frequent hobby of mine okay. as of late. I, I was a kid that, you know, with my textbooks would rarely get money back from the bookstore because of how many doodles I would draw on the pages, in the margins, notes I would take on the page. I was that child. And so <laughs> having an iPad, you know, that allows me to actually write on the screen has just enabled me to take some of those thoughts that I have and create ways that I can share them easily with, you know, in the company here at HoneyBook, with my community, Rising Tide, on my social channels. Um, it's, it's just given me sort of a, a digital way to take my thoughts and express them. And I should say, I am not a letterer. So sometimes people say, oh, you know, you do lettering. No, lettering is an art. Lettering is an extraordinary art. I doodle. I, you know, I just write down if something pops into my head. If I see a quote that I love, I'd rather writing it out helps me to process. And there's neuroscience there too, that when you physically write something down, Mm. you, you have a different way of processing it than when you type it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's, it's just... I don't know, the, the way in which I, I like to kind of think through things. Well, I know that you say, I think even on your website, that you're a nerd at heart. So I'm curious, if you are yeah. doodling on your iPad, is there a particular app that you enjoy using for that purpose? Yes, it's called Procreate. Okay. So the app is called Procreate, and you can get different types of pens. So there are actually people that sell their custom pens online, and you just download it like a Photoshop wow. uh, action or a Lightroom preset. It's wild. And all the, the pens are different, and they enable you to kind of create different looks, and you can create custom pens, and it's so fun. I love it. That's cool. Okay, well, we'll make sure to link to that then in the show notes for our listeners who have an iPad and want to explore their doodling capabilities. I think I think we'll have to to link that there for them. Now, I noticed something interesting, and I, I don't know. We've known each other um, for a, a short amount of time. We've had the opportunity mm-hmm. to interact at, at photography conferences or otherwise. But one of the things that I didn't know about you is that you actually have a psychology degree and more specifically what is described as the psychology of seeing. And this is fascinating to me. I'm fascinated by psychology. Can you describe what is, what is the psychology of seeing? So the psychology of seeing it it is, it's a very strange degree. It's, you know, kind of listed at UPenn as visual studies. I took the psychology of seeing track, which it's a very interdisciplinary major. I studied a lot of cognitive neuroscience. I studied a lot of uh, psychology. Also, though, things along sort of the more basically like human basis for behavior, but also the visual system, how our visual cortex works, ultimately how information is passed from the eyes to the optic nerves from the optic nerves to the optic chiasm, all the way back to the visual cortex, which sits sits at the very, very back of our brain, right? So you imagine the eyes in the front where we actually process visual data is in the back of our head. And I studied all of it. So my major was in understanding how we see the world and how our psychology, sort of how our history, how our emotions, how our experiences 
play a role in which, you know, in the way in which we see. And that can take the form of art, for example. I studied a lot of different types of artists and how artists create different works and how one person can interpret something in one manner, another person can interpret something differently. I studied things like uh, color and color theory. And how different colors can do things like soothe you. Other colors can actually raise your blood pressure slightly. And, and just all of that and how it kind of fits into this sort of visual studies realm. So that was my focus. And I, I, lo- I love the brain. I love studying the brain. I have since my, uh, actually since my degree, really started to delve more into almost neuromarketing, understanding how we market products. How wow. I, I like to think of it as, as you know, understanding the brain and using it for good. There are companies though that that use neuromarketing in slightly nefarious ways. They just, you know, they want to make more money. They want to get every last dollar out of their customers. I really am of the mindset of how do we how do we use our understanding of the brain to encourage people to be more philanthropic? How do we use it to encourage people to get out from behind their computers and connect with other people for the sake of their mental health? How do we, you know, use it to rally people in the spirit of community and combat some of the negativity that we're seeing on the internet? And so I've taken that that passion and kind of evolved it a little as I've gotten more into the entrepreneurial world, but my background is very much in the visual system and understanding how we see. And there's a connection there, obviously, with photography. For sure, which is really a, a great segue into my next question about how, because you're, obviously, you you helped start the Rising Tide Society. You're heading up that community now, and, and it's part of HoneyBook, as you mentioned earlier, but you were a photographer to begin with. What was yeah. the impetus to go from studying psychology to move into photography? So, this is the the true story of all of this. I was I was raised by a single mom and I grew up in a small town outside of DC. It's not really that small, I suppose, but it does have cobblestone streets. So I like to call it a small town Absolutely. of Annapolis, Maryland. I think it counts. Beautiful. And I got into photography initially as sort of a creative outlet and then quickly realized within my senior year of high school, actually, that this could become a business and I needed to make money. I had been shampooing hair at a local hair salon to help, uh, you know, pay the bills. You mean you didn't want to do that forever? Not forever. I, I lo- actually, you know, funny enough, I, I loved getting to experience that sort of corner of the entrepreneurial world in the beauty space. It actually it taught me a ton, um, you know, just being sort of in a service industry and knowing what it meant to take care of somebody when they walk through the doors and really serve them, truly serve them. I washed their hair, right? It's, it's a very fundamental sort of way to care for someone is, is to, to support them in that way. So, it is. But I know I have to interject here because one of the most, I don't know, fascinating is the word, but one of the most interesting experiences that I had at a salon, there was a particular stylist who used to cut my hair years ago. And before she cut my hair, she always, or almost always anyway, washed my hair and in the process, massaged my head. Yes. And it was one of the most relaxing. I mean, I've, I've gotten gobs of massages over the years, but it was one of the most relaxing experiences that I've ever had. And I can imagine that some people that come into a salon and have that experience, it's maybe the little bit of relaxation that they get in a week when they get to mm-hmm. see you. You got it. So for me, that was one of the biggest takeaways was just how people carry the stress and this overwhelm with them from day to day to day. And when they walked through our doors, it was my responsibility to ensure that they could set that aside and be truly at peace with themselves. And the way you describe meditation, I think for a lot of people, 
go, this is, I mean, this is the truth going into a hair salon and for, you know, an hour or 30 minutes, not having to worry about the world, to worry about work and just have a conversation with another human being who's Mm. just there to listen and support them and help them to feel their best. Right. It's a very empowering time period. And so I, I really do. I take, I took a lot away from that experience, but when I found the camera, I also realized, wow, this ability to help people feel great about themselves that I see in the salon I can actually accomplish that with a camera. I can take this tool and, you know, I can help someone to see themselves for the strong or beautiful or confident person that I believe them to be. Yeah. And so it, it really began there and it blossomed, especially from a business standpoint, from a need to actually make money. And that's the truth. You know, I, I needed to make money. I was raised by a single mom and I needed to pay my way through school and pay the parts that financially didn't cover. And I did that successfully with photography. Fully wow. paid off my degree from Penn and was able to do it within two years of graduating. So it was it was a huge gift. I really look at it as, you know, one of the the greatest, um, you know, greatest sort of careers I could have ever discovered and kind of stumbled upon because it brought me into a community that has changed my life in in many ways. Well and it's interesting that you allude to photography as an opportunity to care for other people. I think a lot of photographers get obsessed with the notion that they're going to be artists and they want to communicate their visual perspective or artistic perspective to the world at large. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's some really stunning, stunning artists in our community. But to go at it from a a kind of a bigger picture why that motivates you when you get behind the camera, the idea of trying to take care of somebody, I really love that perspective. I shot weddings for about 10 years. I'm getting ready to uh, get back into wedding photography a little bit, actually. And um, I, I think this is going to be something that I kind of add just to, to the back of my mind as I, as I begin photographing again to really make a proactive choice to care for those in front of the camera, I think is a beautiful motivational factor. That's really, really lovely. Now, you carried that, that idea of caring for others over into the Rising Tide Society, and this, this community has grown so quickly and has provided so much value to so many people over the last few years. But I'm really curious and, and kind of fascinated by it because... Uh, something that I've experienced, even our local photography community, is there is a, a tendency, it seems, these days in a social media and technology-obsessed world to just stay behind the screen, not actually make the uh, the effort, uh, put forth the energy to get out from behind the screen, the computer, the phone, or otherwise, and get out and connect with people in person. But that's so much about what is behind the Rising Tide Society. And I'm curious what you think it is that motivates photographers, specifically with RTS, to get out and connect with each other. I think you've really hit on something here. So this, I almost want to take one quick step back and kind of look at everything from a macro level. And, you know, Ultimately, we live in a world and a society where we would argue, many of us, that we're more connected than ever before, right? We have access to a phone at our fingertips every minute of every day. We can know what everyone else is up to. We can, you know, navigate sort of the up and coming trends in our own industries because we have devices that open up our minds and our worlds to different groups and forums and blog posts and educational resources and all of that. And Rising Tide provides a lot of that. But What all of those things cannot do is allow us as human beings to give and receive empathy in a way that fulfills us on a deeper level. The human brain and the way our empathy system works is through sort of a network of neurons known as mirror neurons. And these neurons very specifically give us this ability to imagine what someone else is experiencing as Mm. if we are experiencing it. 
Now, when you're behind a keyboard and you remove someone's face, someone's voice, their inflection, their tone from the equation, yeah. you know, that's where we actually start to see, I believe, a degradation of our, our industry and our society. We see people, you know, being negative and nasty towards one another. We ourselves look at one another not any longer as friends, but as competitors. We start to tear one another down. There can become these sort of comparison traps where we become obsessed with one person and their success and how they're winning and we're not. Right. It can become you know, sort of a metric by which we track our own worth. You know, if someone has more followers, therefore they are more successful than us in a certain way. Or we might say, oh, this person booked more weddings or they're charging this much. Therefore, they are worth more in this industry than I am. It starts to build these negative um, sort of essentially atmospheres, environments. And yeah. I really firmly believe that the best way to eliminate that, the best way to combat that hatred, that negativity, that envy and jealousy is to get people out from behind the computer and put them face to face to actually have them stare at one another in the eye and have conversations because it's very hard uh, to to build up those types of feelings towards someone that you emotionally connect to that you can empathize with that you see what they're going through and you recognize parts of that pain in your own journey and you're able to connect so on a very very high level what we're trying to do is is tackle a massive problem which is in my opinion the disconnection of human beings to one another through the increase in technology and not seeing technology as either good or bad, just right. seeing it as a barrier to human connection. Our brains didn't, you know, or weren't created and didn't evolve such that phones were meant to be the way in which we connected. Right. There's a reason why, you know, our neural networks work the way they do and why empathy is really driven from the these mirror neurons and how they enable us to imagine the emotions of others. So with that being said, how did we do it with Rising Tide or what are we doing with Rising Tide to encourage that? I think one, uh, it comes down to actually showing people that other people are gathering. This goes back to the idea, you know, of two things sort of in the, the neuromarketing sphere. One is more common than just marketing, which is social proof. So there's social proof and wow, there are 10 creatives gathering down the street from me and they're talking about SEO. Well, that, you know, again, it's like, that sounds like a lot of fun. I really should go. I really should be a part of this. And there's going to be benefit to my business as well. So we're, we're tackling a couple of problems here. We're giving people an outlet to connect with others and creating a safe space where they can do it. That doesn't cost them any money. Everything's free. We run everything through volunteers. And also there's a bottom line benefit for the business. They're going to learn something new. They're going to get access to education that thousands of others are going to be getting access to. And if they miss out on that opportunity, there's a chance they could fall behind in business. And that's what we talk about. We say rising the tide together, raising it you know, all at one time is that we're going to be sharing this with everybody. So being a part of this community and and supporting other people in the process, it's going to benefit you too. And there's something to be said for that. But then also, you know, look, we as human beings, we do fear missing out. We worry that we're going to fall behind. And what I really want to do is is solve that pain point by providing places where people can come together. And we like to say, you can sit with us. It's not an exclusive group. You don't have to pay a big fee to, to hang out with rising titers. Exactly. You don't have to fit a certain mold. We welcome everybody. We really do. We strive to have open arms for all people who just want to come. They want to be a part of a community. They want to give their knowledge and their advice to others, and they want to receive it in return. And that's sort of the sort of, uh, I guess it's, it's like a social contract that we've created. 
and it's worked. You know, we we've seen it work tonight. I've seen it work, and I think part of that's just due to the pain point and us really striving to solve the pain point that, that exists in the market. Yeah, I love how you say so matter of factly it's worked. <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands of photographers later, it is it's definitely worked. And you're obviously providing a certain amount of value really on, on multiple levels in order to draw these photographers out and, and encourage them to spend time together. Would you say then that, I mean, for let, let's just say that there is a local photography community that wants to encourage more involvement by their local photographers. Do you, do you truly have to go beyond just simply getting together? I mean, I, I personally, as somebody who loves connecting with people just love the opportunity to be able to go and sit and have coffee or lunch. And I'm not necessarily looking for that person to give value to me beyond just the opportunity to connect. But I'm not sure that every photographer out there feels necessarily the same way. You, you spoke very specifically to giving value on, on a business level to photographers. Do you feel like that's a necessary component? I think that giving value, yes, is a necessary component. The sort of parameters around what that value entails will differ depending on the audience that you're trying to connect with or the community you're trying to gather together or serve. So for instance, you're in a stage in your business where you have learned a lot of the business fundamentals, right? You've actually built a successful network. And you know, for you, getting to sit down and connect with somebody, that refuels your soul and gives you value in a way that I think both of us can agree will help to propel you forward, whether it's just from, you know, an emotional standpoint, getting to build that human to human connection, hear somebody's story, or maybe even because, and I know you, so I I feel like I can say this, you really love pouring into other people. You love actually having the ability to give honest feedback and support somebody in their journey. And so I could see that actually providing value to you as well. It does with me as well. I love sitting down with somebody and seeing them succeed in the months to come because we had a conversation and maybe they just changed one little thing about their communication strategy or something. And it wasn't a mentoring session or a workshop or a conference speech. It was a genuine friend to friend conversation. And I see the value there. But for a lot of people who are just getting started, you know, their time and and the ability for them to think about how they're spending that time, whether they have a full-time job and photography is a side hustle they want to turn into a business, or if they're in a different stage of their business, the needs that they have, whether it is emotional, financial, educational, um, and even entertainment needs, they're going to vary. So for Rising Tide, we sort of found our sweet spot in providing educational resources and community support. But I've seen great photography groups specifically that will do, for example, social media shootouts where they'll gather, you know, 15 photographers, they'll walk around the coolest spots in their hometown, and they'll just photograph one another for social media. Hmm. And that value is going to be getting photographs for them to use on, on their communication platforms and to share with ideal clients and help to communicate who they are from a personality standpoint. Yeah. And it doesn't require them teaching one another business. They're really just hanging out and doing what they love. But the value there is, you know, massive for a lot of them. So I think, again, there there does need to be value provided. And I think value is provided in any of those different scenarios that we talked about. But it really just comes back to understanding what the needs are of the people that you're trying to gather. Because I, I you know, believe at the end of the day, there's a lot of things vying for our attention. And we no longer have a struggle to get beneath someone's thumb. That's hmm. what I always say. I, yeah. look, it's easy to get under somebody's thumb these days. You post something on social, you can get under their thumb. It's very hard to get them to stop their scroll. It's very hard to get them to pay attention. It's very hard to get them to not only pay attention and stop scrolling, but then to stand up and actually go somewhere, do something. And 
the, the best way to do that is to provide a value that they see as being, you know, a necessary component in their day-to-day life or their business strategy. And that can look different for different types of people. Now, would you say, I'm curious with your psychology background, when, when somebody, and you even mentioned this earlier, that, that you feel as though you're an introvert, a lot of photographers mm-hmm. will speak to the notion of being introverts. And I have kind of my, my, I guess, ideas about what is behind introversion with a lot of individuals, including myself. In fact, for, for the longest time, I would have labeled myself an introvert. What I realized personally was that um, a lot of that so-called introversion uh, or shyness when it came to interacting with groups of people had to do with just simply not being comfortable with myself. And once mm-hmm. I was able to address those deeper issues, uh, or continue to for that matter, um, it it enabled me to be more comfortable in groups of people and the idea of going out and connecting with a group was much easier. But when photographers say, Hey, you know what? I'm an introvert. I'm not comfortable getting out with groups of photographers, hanging out with groups of photographers. How would you respond to that? Or I didn't maybe more specifically, do you have suggestions as how they can kind of step beyond that tendency for the sake of benefiting from these communities? Absolutely. So I love your assessment on introversion. I think what's interesting is that for everybody, it's a little bit different. I would love one day for us to chat about just the personality sort of structure of the creative world, because I do think we see certain trends. And I think introversion is one of those trends, especially among photographers. And again, my quick take on that is I know that I succeeded in the photography sort of realm specifically because I was able to spend 80% of my time behind a computer editing and 20% of my time out there actually photographing (laughs) and connecting with others. And I could give people 150% of my, you know, passion and creativity because most of my time was spent sort of retreating alone. But, um, Look, my here's my here's my advice. My mom once said something to me. I again, I mentioned being a nerdy kid, and I was a very insecure child too. I was very anxious, and I often just felt like I didn't belong. I, I really kind of was was super nerdy, and and I, I was a smart kid, but with that came the cost of being a little bit socially awkward. And my mom once said to me, you know, because I was really nervous to go to. I will never forget this. I was really nervous to go to this party. It was my freshman year of high school, and my mom said to me, "Natalie, everybody at that party is worrying about how they look. They're not worrying about how you look." Yeah, yeah. Everybody at that party is worrying about how they're going to come across. They're not worrying about how you're going to come across, right? They're worrying about themselves. They are insecure. They are nervous too, just like you. They don't know any more than you do. They don't have their stuff all figured out. They aren't, you know, as cool as you're making them out to be in your minds. <laughs> Go and be yourself. Yeah. And don't be afraid to, you know, put yourself out there. And there was something about the way my mom phrased it, especially at such a young age, you know, looking back, even as an adult where I'm like, you know what, mom, you're absolutely right. Even in business, when I go to different meetings or conferences, especially now that I'm speaking and I get to go back into these rooms full of speakers that I love and that I admire and that I feel like I have no place sitting next to. (laughs) And, you know, I just hear my mom saying they don't have it figured out either. And I think that's sort of a a philosophy that's helped me to navigate Mm. different groups within the creative space is I I walk into a room and I am not afraid to be vulnerable. I'm not afraid to admit that I don't have it all together. I'm not afraid to mix up my words and make a mistake because I I think that we don't need our leaders to be perfect. We need them to have integrity and we need them, you know, to be honest with us and open with us. And we don't, you know, we don't hate somebody for making a mistake. Oftentimes when somebody makes a mistake, we get mad if they try to cover it up 
or they try to pretend like they didn't make a mistake yeah. or they try to navigate a world in which they, you know, act as though they're perfect. We embrace people being imperfect because we ourselves are imperfect. So I think if that helps you to, to look at a scenario where you want to go and spend time with other creatives or other photographers and you're anxious for whatever reason, maybe you think you don't belong. Maybe you feel like your business isn't as good as theirs or that your work isn't the same or that they're going to judge you for not knowing your settings or not knowing how to navigate off camera flash or whatever it is. Know that I have a good feeling most of the people in that room have either A, walked into a room and not known those same things at one point in their career, or B, aren't nearly as perfect and polished as you're making them out to be in your minds or that social media is making them out to seem on the screen. They're human beings just like you. And something really powerful can happen when you're willing to step out from beyond your comfort zone and just be human with them. 100%. And, and you summed that up beautifully. And I really appreciate you sharing that perspective. It's it's particularly interesting coming, coming from somebody like yourself who is a self-proclaimed introvert and yet is out, as you're saying, speaking, sharing with hundreds, thousands of photographers. To be able to do both is a really interesting dichotomy. But I, I think the perspective that you just shared is, is wonderful for our listeners. And, and I really thank you for that. What would you say, maybe on a totally different note, What's the toughest lesson that you've learned as a business owner, as an entrepreneur so far? Oh, there, <laughs> I you feel know, you. I sigh because there are so many directions I could go with this. I mean, I could go the direction of confidence and saying that for many years, I didn't believe I could do it myself. And therefore, I, I just, you know, held back on a lot of my dreams. There's the direction I could go where I could talk about mental health and sort of how I never fully realized the sacrifice that being an entrepreneur was was really going to mean needing to make. And I, I never imagined the toll, I think, that being an entrepreneur would take on me hmm. uh, psychologically, especially during those years where, you know, I was shooting 39 weddings a season by myself and wow. taking that on and, you know, not anticipating, well, this is a perfect, actually, let's, let's go this route. Because look, when I when I was doing that, I you know I looked on social media. I saw the glitz and glamour of this job, and I portrayed that exact same passion externally. But on the inside, I was crumbling. On the inside, I was overwhelmed. I hadn't built up systems in my business. I wasn't outsourcing my editing. Right, one of the biggest mistakes photographers make is not seeing points where they can outsource. Yeah. And I didn't have something like HoneyBook in my life either. And I was doing everything and crumbling. And I think the biggest lesson that I learned was it doesn't make me less of an entrepreneur to outsource and lean on others. It actually makes me a better entrepreneur. It makes me a boss, a CEO. It allowed yeah. me to start treating my business like a real business and stop trying to hold everything together with my own two hands. And it changed everything for me. I mean, I was able to spend a small amount of money and make even more money because I could reallocate my time in a more strategic and intentional way. I was able to, you know, make more time for my husband and also, you know, kind of build, build basically avenues in my business to increase revenue that freed up even more of my time, you know, and increased right. my prices in some places. And I, I mentioned time tracking earlier. And for me, it goes back to how, where am I spending my time and how much money am I making per time spent? And I would start to do calculations where I realized, wow, 
instead of spending these eight hours doing this editing or, you know, these three hours running to the bank to deposit checks and running to the post office to get my PO box to get all my contracts, right? If I could reallocate that time towards marketing my business or spend an hour of that three hours with another photographer networking so we could send referrals back and forth in the coming season, you know, I, I just discovered these places where there had been inefficiencies and I, I enabled the snowball of inefficiency to overwhelm me to a place where it really impacted me on a very, very scary you know, level. And I'm not alone in this. And I don't shy away from talking about the mental health struggles of entrepreneurs. There have been studies done that say one in every three entrepreneurs struggles with depression or anxiety. I think that biggest lesson was just learning one, that I'm not alone. And two, there are ways that I can sort of create structure. I mentioned that calendar, create structure to prevent me. And I know myself and you guys know yourselves better than anybody else, but to prevent me, to prevent you from going down that path of you know, burnout, exhaustion, not taking care of your mental wellness and well-being. I, it took me a very, very long time to realize sort of what I had done to to myself. And in some ways, you know, I, I still feel like I am having to bounce back from just the habits and routines that I got into that I started to believe were acceptable in terms of, you know, work hours and uh, availability to the outside world. And, um, it's it's been it's been a long journey, but that probably for me that is probably the most important lesson. Well, and I love that you spoke to the significance of strategy too. You know, I, this is a conversation that I've had countless times at this point with photographers when they're talking about the possibility of outsourcing something like editing, and they'll speak to the cost of it, the immediate cost. You know, how much cash out of pocket, a hundred dollars, hundred fifty dollars, two hundred dollars, whatever it might be, to delegate the editing of a wedding or an event to a company like Photographers Edit. Right. And that's where the conversation ends. They say, well, I can save that cash. But yeah. what is missed, and, and maybe, I mean, aside from creating more freedom, more flexibility for themselves, for the important people in their life, um, that, that, that delegating that type of work can bring, mm-hmm. it also gives you the space mm-hmm. to be able to do the things that you were, just, you were just describing, which is to do the work that will actually help grow your business. And, and that's the that's the component of the conversation that always gets mixed or missed rather. And again, it's easy to be in that reactive state where you just you feel like you just have to get the work done and get it out and get it to the client. But the reality is that delegating really what is ultimately busy work like editing or album design or some of these other things that are very time consuming for a photography business owner means that you now have time to do the things that will actually grow your business. And the one that I always speak to having shot weddings for over 10 years is the significant relationship or relationships that will drive business. As a wedding photographer, yes. that's a wedding coordinator. Uh, we worked with an incredible wedding coordinator here in the Chattanooga area who drove thousands of dollars of business to us. But without the time to not only create but nurture relationship like that, I wouldn't have the opportunity to build my business like that. So I, I'm glad that you spoke to the significance of strategy and the use of time that you're able to gain from delegating busy work because it can make all the difference in the world to the photography business owner. And I'll make it even really simple. If I told you right now, and I want everyone to kind of think about this, if I told you right now that you have two weeks to live, and I'm, I, there is a reason I'm, I'm using two weeks here. If I told you you have two weeks to live or you have two weeks until a catastrophic event is going to happen for you, how would you spend that time? Mm. Because for me in October, I found out I had two weeks until I was going to have brain surgery. And 
again, I had very good feeling and prognosis and indicator that I would be fine on the other side of that surgery. I also knew though that a lot of the men and women that were sitting me, sitting with me in that waiting room at UCSF neurological did not have the same diagnosis that I did. Hmm. And everything changed for me the minute that I realized I was going in for that surgery because I would have given anything for more time with my husband. Yeah. I would have sacrificed anything to just give my mom a hug and spend more time inefficiently with the ones I loved. Yeah. And so I look back on the last 10 years of my life. And when I talk about efficiency, I don't mean efficiency in the time with people. I mean efficiency with everything else. Efficiency in the business so that I can be inefficient with the people that I love. I love that. So that I can spend that time just, you know, investing in them and getting to spend time with them because the rest of it, you know, a lot of it can be either systematized or outsourced and be done in a way that doesn't deplete the quality of what you're doing. Right. And I think that for me, that, that moment just changed everything. I I regretted so many little tiny things that I had done and spent time doing instead of going home and making dinner with my husband and just laughing, spending time talking and building our relationship. You know, I, I, I really have changed since my surgery. My husband jokes all the time. He said, you've always been a nice person. But he, he goes, you're so much nicer now. And I said, <laughs> am I really nicer now? Or do we think I just have my priorities straight? And he laughs and he goes, I don't know. I don't know, maybe. But I think that uh, he's onto something. And I think that, you know, what he's picking up on is the fact that I don't take my time uh, with him or with other people that I love for granted any longer. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs can get in the habit of saying, well, this is a season of hustle and I've got to get it all done and I've got to make it happen. But what they're doing is they're working harder and they're not working smarter. Right. And, you know, it's not a substitute for hard work by any means, but I do think that being smart about how you structure your business can enable you to live a life where when, or God forbid, something happens and and you have to kind of take a step back or set things down like I did, you can do it not feeling the way I felt. You can do it saying like, wow, I've I've got these two weeks. I've got my systems in place. My business is going to keep running itself. It's Everything's going to be okay. And I can spend time, you know, healing from this surgery or investing in the ones I love or being with a loved one that's going through cancer or chemotherapy. I can set aside certain things to invest my time there because I've built a structure that can exist without me um, for short periods of time. And I, I, for me, that was, that was just a game changer mentally and uh, really shaped, I think now how I operate rising tide and how I, you know, just work on the personal brand side of things as well. Well, first of all, I have to say that we're so glad that you're doing better physically, that you did Thank come you. through that surgery and, and are doing better. You, you mentioned before we started recording that you are feeling uh, quite a bit better and I'm so glad for that. And, and I actually want to, I want to kind of get into just briefly a little bit about how that has affected your relationship with your husband here in just a second, because that, that's a fascinating perspective, I think, to gain. But one of the things that you just mentioned, I think we should reiterate, which is the significance of working intelligently. And I know that you and I are both huge fans of Gary Vaynerchuk. And um, I, I'm, I've really, truly, in fact, in the last two or three months in particular, been inspired really yet again, because I've been following him for a while to be consistent in my so-called hustle. But I think one of the things that may get missed when people listen to his content or watch his content, and he's just constantly on the go and working so hard, they miss the strategy behind that. And we can't emphasize enough 
the significance of strategy and ultimately working intelligently. It's one thing to be busy. It's one thing to be busy doing the things that actually matter to, well, first of all, your personal life, but then also to your business. And unless you're really clear about your long-term goals, kind of the big picture views, what I refer to it as, um, then you can just be spinning your wheels and you can look busy, but you're not really getting anywhere. So I think it's so important, as you say, to work intelligently so that you don't get burnout. So your business can actually move forward in, in a positive direction. I'm glad that you make that point. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to get to kind of our primary focus today. I, we've, we've hit so many different points and it has been really, really wonderful already, but I am personally fascinated by relationships and I get to kind of indulge in that fascination from time to time on the podcast, exploring relationships a little bit. But you've mentioned your husband a number of times, and mm-hmm. I, I'm curious if you just give us a little bit of a backstory, how you guys met, what drew you to him, and uh, kind of what brings you guys to this point today. Yes. I mean, it was definitely at the age of 15, his shaggy, long surfer hair and <laughs> terrible style. No, I fell in love with my high school sweetheart. Huey and I met when I was 15 years old and fell in love just as kids. And that love and relationship and that friendship and partnership really blossomed in the following years where life got a lot harder for for me specifically. And I, you know, financially, my family went through some stuff. I, you know, it just, I grew up immensely health stuff, obviously, as I, I've kind of alluded to as well. I fell in love and found my, my life partner at a very young age. And I have been so fortunate to just kind of do life with him. He is my compliment in every way. He's a far better man than I deserve. And the phrase, it's a cliche, but they say better half. I often joke, I really do feel like we are the same person. He's just far better at so many things than I am. <laughs> and he would argue probably the same, but I, I married way, way up without a doubt. And what was the, was there a particular element of his personality? I know you said that you're very much the same, but like, what yeah. was the thing as, you, as you're, I mean, if you can think even back to high school, like when you're seeing each other in the hallways at school or in class together, maybe you get to go on a date afterwards. Like, what was the, what was the thing that just really created that spark for you getting to spend time with Huey? You know, it's funny. I am very enthusiastic, passionate, all over the place, creative, uh, you know, in a lot of ways. And my husband, he, I I think, you know, really, it boiled down to, I fell in love with his quiet confidence. Mm. I fell in love with his ability to listen to me ramble for two hours and he could repeat (laughs) one sentence that summed up far more than I said in two hours. He's a listener and a very uh, intent listener. He's a strategist. He is very much like someone that can be in a room with anyone and make them feel at home. And he has a laugh that if you ever spend time with my husband and he laughs, you will know right away what I'm saying right now. He has the most incredible laugh. He's a laugh that people then laugh at. Like he yeah. is, is that guy in a friend group that is kind of like the quiet one that is also the glue. He makes sure that you stay together as a group. He makes sure that people, they, I mean, let me put it in perspective. His group of friends, they have been friends since they were, maybe nine, 10 years old, they've got photos together and they are still the closest of friends. Uh, His best friend Chuma is now launching a startup out here in San Francisco, went through Y Combinator, one of the top accelerators, and he did it all while sleeping on our floor, right? They've stayed friends since they were nine. They've got photos together as children. And Huey, I think is, is a big part of that. He cares so much about people that he just becomes the glue. And I saw that at a really, you know, young age of just 
always feeling like in my world, my life was very, very much constantly fluctuating. My Mm. dad left when I was a kid. You know, it always felt like there were a million things on my plate. And then I met this, this man who could so simply see the world and just boil things down in a very concrete way. He's very steady and he's very strong. And I, I just, I fell in love with that. And I, I saw as crazy as it sounds at 15, I I saw our potential life together and I knew that he was the kind of life partner that would stand by me in a way that maybe my father hadn't. And I knew he was exactly what I needed in my Mm. life for a best friend. I've been so fortunate to be able to do life with him. Wow. I I love how effusive you get in describing Huey and and that relationship, what drew you to him and then the relationship that has uh, developed as a result. But I'm curious too, you alluded to this earlier, how your perspective changed as a result of the surgery. And you kind of joked about how you got even nicer than you did before. But what was <laughs> what was that shift like in your relationship pre-surgery versus post-surgery? Oh, so a couple of things. I think, you know, when you first meet somebody and you get into an, into a relationship with them, there are a lot of different things that you kind of still hold to close to the, to the vest, close to your chest, essentially, right? Your independence is one of those things. I think it can be very natural for young couples or, you know, even heck, it doesn't need to be a romantic relationship. You could apply this as well to friendships, but you only give so much of yourself vulnerably because Mm. you, you know, for whatever reason are afraid of revealing all of the parts of yourself that maybe you don't like. Maybe you you have things that personality traits or things that you're nervous about or insecure about or things that you just don't want to put on someone else to burden them with. Before surgery for me, you know, we have always been close. We've been together for 12 years. And I would have told you, you know, we were very, very close that we truly felt comfortable with one another. And with my surgery, I was forced to rely on my husband for things that you never dream of relying on another human being for until you're 80. I couldn't shower mm. myself. You know, I couldn't even get up to use the restroom by myself. And I developed diabetes insipidus, which is water diabetes. And wow. long story short, I'm thirsty all the time. And I pee like every 30 minutes, I'm like a pregnant <laughs> woman. So my poor husband was having to help me get up from the bed every 30 minutes to pee and actually be in the room with me, right? Helping me. And I paint this picture very intentionally as cringy as it can be, because this is the type of serve, like sort of servant hearted leadership that my husband displayed in those moments for me that I will never forget. And I was forced to truly kind of set down any shame or insecurity or desire to seem, you know, perfect in his eyes because I realized that he loved me and therefore I didn't need to be anything else, but you know, his partner in this. And it, it just strengthened us in a really, really unique and profound way. And now, you know, after my surgery, we're starting down this infertility journey that I don't talk a ton about primarily, I think because it's, it's still very new and it's something that so many of my friends and colleagues are also going through Mm. alongside us. But it's, it's directly the result of my brain surgery. And I've watched this man yet again, you know, help me with injections, help me through different parts of this process. And I I think it's just, I've realized that I'm not alone in this anymore, that I can really rely on him. And I've just seen a different side of him. And I would hope that vice versa, that he's seen a kindness in me and an appreciation in me that perhaps I've never had before, because I'm just seeing, seeing him for the man that he truly is, which is even in my eyes, more extraordinary than the day that I met him. 
Wow, that's beautiful. And would you say that this is has translated to a shift in the way that you all prioritize time with each other? And, and this is really kind of my focus in, in our conversation today, especially with regards to your relationship with Huey, because I know that as a photographer, somebody who helped start RTS and, and then is continuing to lead RTS, Rising Tide Society, and, and be involved with HoneyBook. I mean, you're, you're traveling a lot, you're speaking, you're so busy, and yet having a, a healthy marriage requires a time commitment and a prioritization. How do you balance that? I mean, have there been times where business has kind of gotten in the way of that relationship, and has that changed um, even more recently post-surgery? Absolutely. So the last thing that you said really hit sort of the nail on the head in terms of direction for the answer to this question, which is before surgery, I, my, I should put it this way too. My, my business lifestyle hasn't entirely changed. I still travel a lot for my job. I mean, I've been to the Middle East twice in the last, you know, couple of months. Wow. I've traveled to a bunch of different cities and my schedule actually looks like more travel uh, in the future. However, the way in which I approach the time that we have together has changed, meaning mm. there are no phones when we're sitting down for dinner. There is, you know, no distraction from our conversation. We carve out date night once a week. We go to a different restaurant in San Francisco now. And, you know, we make time for one another whenever we can. We walk to work together every single day and we walk home from work together every single day. And it's 20 minutes each way. And it's 20 minutes of us just debriefing, talking, me asking him about what he's working on with his company. You know, he leads marketing for a family tech company that's doing really well. And I, I will ask him for advice on, on different initiatives that I'm running, if it's business related or sometimes we just talk about, you know, what, what do we want to do this weekend? And we just went camping last weekend and spent the whole weekend away from the outside world, just hanging out with our, with our friends. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that lifestyle is still very hectic. However, I'm a lot less flexible when it comes to the time I've carved out for my husband. You know, if, there's somebody that wants me to go speak at something. I am much quicker to say no now than I was before. I'm much quicker to kind of even, again, not that I ever ask him for permission to do things in business, but I will directly ask him, hey, there's this opportunity to do X, Y, Z. You know, how do you feel about it? Do you think we have enough bandwidth that month for me to leave versus, oh, please let me go. I really want to go do this thing. You know, it's, it's about prioritizing us. And we come before the business opportunity. And as long as that's the case, then, you know, it continues to be a partnership in in all aspects of my life. And I, you know, I'm still navigating it and I'm still learning it. I just think the biggest difference between before and now is the, the heart and intention behind what comes first in my life versus, you know, when it's convenient to make time for us to be together. Ah, yeah, that word convenience, which, I mean, it almost kind of, sta- it's a bit of a stab in the heart for me when I even heard that, because the, the yeah. idea that that our relationship with our significant other, or even, as you said earlier, a close friend or family member, that it, it gets to a point where we really only truly are engaged in it when it's convenient is it's uh, that just hurts. The idea of that yes. hurts. And so I love that you're being proactive in that. I also love that you mentioned the word partnership, especially when it comes to something like spending time apart, you're traveling to go do this thing or that, you know, there's, there's vocabulary and I think words matter. And this is really a whole conversation in and of itself, but there's vocabulary that I hear couples use a lot that has to do with permission. Mm -hmm. The idea that somebody else is going to give them permission to go do something. I love the way that you describe these conversations and that they were just that. They're conversations about what works best for the relationship, not whether or not you have permission to go do something or another. I I think that playing an equal 
playing field uh, is, is so important for the sake of the health of relationship. And, and I love that you guys approach it that way. Absolutely. And look, when I, when I say to him, Hey, this is the opportunity. What are your thoughts on it? That enables the ball to be in my court. And one thing that I've learned is in relationships, when you do that, you also, you give a, the person the ability to give their feedback and you also prove to them in that moment based on your decision, right? Where you're placing your priorities. And so for me, I look at it like this. If I say, Hey, Huey, there's a great opportunity for me to go speak at this thing. And he says, but I really wanted us to go and spend that one weekend that you still have in Yosemite. This is an actual example. Yeah. And he said, you know, do whatever you want. I support you. This is literally the words of my husband. Do whatever you want. I support you. I just, I would really love for us to go to, to camp, you know? And when I say to him, you're right, we, we need to go camp. I'm going to turn this thing down. He wasn't telling me not to do it. Instead, what he was doing was opening up the opportunity for mm. me to choose our relationship over a professional opportunity. And I have learned that, you know, I can decide either way. I could decide to go do the professional opportunity and try to renegotiate a time for us to spend time together. And maybe for some opportunities, that may be a a direction in which I lean. However, it brings me so much joy in this season of my life to be able to say, no, I think you're hundred percent right. I really, we need to, we need to do something fun that weekend. You know, I'm already traveling two other weeks that, that month let's, let's plan that Yosemite trip. And what I will do is let this opportunity know that now's not the right time, but I would love to do it next year. And I've done that now multiple times. And I've also seen how that builds confidence in him and how that builds, you know, a deeper connection in our relationship because it's us choosing one another. It's not one person saying, I don't, you can't do that. Don't right. do that. I don't want you to do that. That builds resentment. That builds distrust and um, can just lead to really negative consequences, I think, in a relationship, you know, regardless of, of gender role, right? Like that can just lead to kind of this, For sure. this feeling of instability versus where you're always leaving these, these areas open. And then if someone makes a decision that doesn't stay in line with what you were hoping they would make, to use that to facilitate a conversation about why it matters to you and perhaps to, to really work through things as, as a couple. And we've done that. I mean, clearly, if you hear me talk right now, you're hearing me process through to you guys kind of what you know, five years of marriage have, have kind of brought me to in terms mm. of how to navigate running a business and building a sustainable marriage, building a, a successful marriage. Because, you know, I have really had to learn a lot of this, I think, from from just stumbling through it and making mistakes along the way, which is okay, too. Well, and I'm kind of reading into this a little bit, but when you describe him saying, go do whatever you want to, but this is what I'm thinking. It's yeah. not a sarcastic, you hear this no. sadly with yeah, a lot of couples sarcastic. where it's just like, do whatever you want to. And then it's just a passive aggressive, you know, guilt trip basically. Oh um, no. But, oh yeah. But, but what it sounds like is he's creating an environment as you described for conversation, for an opportunity for you, you all to decide together. And the interesting thing about that, you know, the, I guess maybe the other way around the irony and being sarcastic and passive aggressive and ultimately controlling about a scenario like that is it just naturally creates a negative environment in which the other person doesn't want to think about you or consider you. You instead want to fight back. If you create an environment where there's room for conversation like that and it's genuine concern and and love and then ultimately openness uh, to the other person making a choice for themselves, I I don't know. There's a certain amount of really positive tension I think that's created in that which encourages what you described, Natalie, which is, a you know what? You're actually right. That's That's a really great idea and we should spend that time together. I think that's beautiful. 
Absolutely. And this comes to you from, you know, a lot of you guys, if you followed our journey, you know, this comes from a relationship in which my husband, we we got the opportunity to move out here to San Francisco and I was very hesitant. Our whole world was in Annapolis. And my husband was the one that actually said to me, you know, this is an opportunity that you cannot pass up. Like we need to do this together. And he was the driving force for our move. A lot of people think, oh, you know, I got a great opportunity out here and we moved. But in reality, it was my husband recognizing an opportunity for me and encouraging me in a moment where I felt, you know, doubt. I felt fear. I was nervous. I, you know, and he has done so many things that have just enabled me to be at the place where I am. And he sacrificed a lot. I often joke to him. I say, I can't wait. I look forward to the day where I get the opportunity to sacrifice for you the way you've sacrificed for me because he, you know, has set aside a lot of his own ambition and career sort of dreams in order to help facilitate this path that I'm on. And, you know, I've been very, very fortunate in in that respect. And, you know, I, I can't really thank him enough for that. So yes, when I say things like do whatever you want, it's not, (laughs) he's definitely not being sarcastic. This poor man is the one that said, no, like we're going to change everything about our lives so that you can build community full time because I know it's what you're called and created to do. And I've, you know, been very, very fortunate to to have him as a partner. That's incredible. Well, just in closing, and I want to respect your time. I'm curious if you just make this a little bit more tangible for our listeners. And you've, you've already alluded to some ideas uh, or some ways really in which you all have begun to prioritize the relationship even more, especially post-surgery. Um, but are there certain things that you do actively, consistently on a regular basis that enables you to have that time together despite your busy schedule? Yes. So I'm, I'm old school. I was raised by uh, my, my mom and my grandmother. And for us, dinner time was the most important time as a family. Mm. You came together as a family, you sat down around a table, you talked. And so I've really, and, and here's the other thing too, guys, everybody's got to eat. You've got to eat dinner at some point, right? So there's <laughs> yes. no excuse in saying, I'm not going to eat dinner today, right? You, you need to eat dinner um, or if not dinner, lunch or breakfast. But that has become sort of a, a staple sort of time for yeah. us in our relationship. So I carve out time more tangibly by saying every night at dinner, we're eating together. Mm. It might look different. For example, we do date nights where once a week we go to a different place in the city. I make the reservations and surprise him. So he doesn't even know where we're going, oh, fun. which is really fun. And thus far I've done a good job. So I get to keep <laughs> that responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we do date night once a week, every night um, at six, between like six and six thirty. I will make dinner for us or me. I'm not the best cook. So sometimes it's a treat if he makes himself dinner. It's a little bit better tasting than why I make it. <laughs> but uh, we have dinner together every night, which has been huge. We also take time to go on walks together. So we have I have to commute to work every day. He has, One of his responsibilities in the partnership is walking the dog. So we overlap those responsibilities at the same time. So every morning we walk from my house hmm. to my office together and he comes and picks me up at the end of the day with a dog as well and we walk home. And so we've baked in that additional time just to being a part, a part of our team. And then we also really strive to take one weekend a month that is our weekend and you know, it's looked different depending on where we've lived or what season of life we've been in. I mean, lately we live in California. So Huey's really been trying to take advantage of hiking and getting us out to the Marin headlands and other places. Like I mentioned, we went camping last weekend, but one weekend a month that is truly dedicated to our relationship. And if you are a photographer that specializes in weddings specifically, you know, and understand how hard that can be in season when you're shooting, you know, full time and it's wedding season. But 
I wish, and I, this is like one little parting bit of advice here. I wish I had taken time to truly set aside one weekend a month for my relationship, even in busy season, Mm. because that break, it just helps to get you through the chaos of a very hard time when you know you have something to look forward to and you can say, okay, next weekend we're going here or next weekend we're going on the boat or we're doing this thing as a couple or, you know, not going to be working. It really helps you to push through when other things get hard because you know, there's a light at the end of that tunnel. So I think it's a combination of factors. I think it's both the integral day-to-day ways that you can carve out time. Yes. Maybe that's dinner and walks in the morning. Yeah. And then it's also making time for fun things. It's making time for things that are sort of extraordinary that, yes. you know, doesn't need to, you don't need to spend a lot of money, but you got to plan something creative. It could be a scavenger hunt or mm-hmm. it could be really, you can get creative with it. And just, and making it, making it a commitment, you know, really committing to it and saying, we're going to do this once a week. That's how we, or once a month, I'm sorry. That's how, that's how we've kind of woven it in and really prioritized it, especially in the last couple of months. I love that. You know, and even for those who are like, what, there's just no way I've got, you know, I'm shooting 50 weddings this year. Then, then make your, your quote weekend, the, maybe the Sunday and the Monday following where, and, and this is something that I actually used to do, especially for the sake of my kids. Um, they're 16 and 13 now, but especially when they were younger, g- making sure that they had dedicated time where we weren't sitting in front of our computers or, you know, whatever it might've been out doing shoots or otherwise there was for the longest time, it was fun Monday. While the kids were really young before they started school, it was fun Monday. And so they knew mom and dad, they're not going to be behind the computer on Mondays. Computers are closed. They're not working. We're going to go do something fun. We're going to go to the children's museum. We're going to go to the aquarium. Chattanooga is just home to the wonderful, wonderful opportunities to spend time with family doing a variety of things. But it was fun Monday and then it went to fun Sunday uh, once they started school. But, you know, even if it is a day or ideally even a couple of days where you, you just shift your schedule around in order to prioritize that time off and time with your significant other or friends or family, prioritizing that time proactively is so important. And I love the mix, Natalie, as you said, of kind of the day-to-day bits of time, whether it's 20-minute walk or, you know, half hour, an hour dinner, whatever it might be, or then longer periods of time, a day or two where you can get away. I think it's so important. And I love the, the balance that, that you're exhibiting in that. But uh, this has been such a great conversation. And uh, I, for this, speaking of time, I want to respect your time. I'm going to let you go here. But maybe before you do, if you don't mind just sharing with our listeners where um, not only they can learn more about Rising Tide Society, but then also a bit more about your entrepreneurial journey as well. Absolutely. So the best place to get connected to Rising Tide, I would say, is just by heading to our website. So if you go to honeybook.com slash Rising Tide, you can get access to everything from where the, your local meetup is. We've got over 400 in different cities around the world uh, to you know different social channels you could follow, Instagram at Rising Tide Society and so on. Uh, we're always sharing new content and looking to connect and uh, you can definitely find us there. And then on the personal side of things, there are a lot of different places where we can connect. I prefer Instagram. I really love Instagram as a platform to connect. I'm sharing on stories constantly and I encourage you to send me a direct message to reach out if you hear this podcast, if there's something you want to chat about, whether it's personal or professional. My role and, and my calling is, is to create community and that involves really getting to know you. So feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. You can always just send me an email as well. Um, my website is nataliefrank.com. So feel free to connect there. Too. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And Instagram, same thing, Natalie Frank, N-A-T-A-L-I-E-F-R-A-N-K-E. Natalie, yes. thank you so much for making time for the Book of Podcast listeners. It was quite a privilege and, and I really appreciated our conversation. Thanks so much, Nathan. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Boca podcast today. Will you let us know what you think by leaving a review of the podcast in iTunes or maybe in the Apple podcast app? And I'd love to hear from you personally with your thoughts about the podcast, maybe suggestions about future topics and guests for the show. My direct email is nathan at photographersedit.com. The Boca podcast is brought to you by Photographers Edit, custom image editing for the wedding and portrait photographer. Just visit photographersedit.com. Thank you.